What's up, everybody? Welcome to the View from Jamestown podcast edition. This is the third of our three-part mini-series with Diaz Trade Law. And uh, this morning we are sitting down with Jen Diaz and David Craven from Diaz Trade Law. Good, uh, I guess it's actually the afternoon. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having us back. Of course, of course. Looking forward to our conversation today on all things duty, anti-dumping. Uh, should be a, a, another one of our little mini-series here and a, certainly a relevant piece of everything we've been talking about for the last three episodes. So looking forward to jumping into it. Um, but if you haven't listened to the first two episodes, we have Jen Diaz. Uh, Jen is the board, certif- board certified international attorney and president of Diaz Trade Law. And for the first time, we also have David Craven. Uh, he's the of counsel attorney concentrating in anti-dumping and counter Veiling? Countervailing duties? Did I say that right? You got that. I can't read my own handwriting. We're going to teach you all the lingo today, Ben. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm, um, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I'm a, I'm a rookie in this uh, topic, so excited to jump into it. Um, you would be but... the first, Ben. Lots of rookies in this topic. That's why we need a specialist. And hopefully we'll make some non-rookies after this conversation and this Ooh, podcast. Oh, I have to delete so... that part. That's why we need somebody concentrating in the area. See, the specialist <laughs> just comes to me. That's fine. As long as I don't characterize myself that way, we're cool. Awesome. Well, Jen, David, I'll let you guys take it from here. I'd love to get a little bio. Um, Obviously, if you've listened to the first two episodes, you've heard a bit from Jen already. But if you haven't, we'd love to get a little bit of bio both on Diaz Trade Law uh, as well as both your backgrounds. So, um, Jen, maybe I'll have you kick it off. Thanks so much, Ben. Thrilled to be here again talking about such a fun topic. My name is Jen Diaz, board certified international attorney. And at Diaz Trade Law, we pride ourselves on strictly working on import export related topics. And with David and our all star team of attorneys, we have over 60 years of collective experience in international trade and customs related matters. So normally I call ourselves the 911 operators of trade because typically our clients call us in emergency crazy situations where the government's yelling at them, someone's yelling at them, the house is on fire and such. And we do our best to extinguish that fire and make their life a pleasure. It's most beneficial when people come to us before where we can handle import or export related transactions and offer proactive, what we call pre-compliance. But as we talked about in our first couple episodes, Ben, it's about 10, maybe 20% if we're lucky that we get to help on the front end. Normally, we're dealing with fires. So when it comes to anti-dumping and countervailing duties, I like to dub David Craven, who we have as our guest today, as the godfather of anti-dumping and countervailing duties, because he knows it all. I I would just about say, and I, I, I would bet on very few things, but I would bet at least a dollar that there is just about no topic anti-dumping or countervailing duties related that you can stump David on, and he's not at least, at least familiar with. Well, that's a that's a heck of an introduction. I don't know if David, you can you can concur with that and, and continue. Well, I, I I will simply note that the anti-dumping laws essentially date back uh, from about nineteen. Well, they date back much further, but the most important revision was in about 1979, 1980. And I uh, went to law school and graduated from law school in 19 uh, early 1980s and i've been working in this field for 37 years i worked in this field as a law student as well and so i have essentially seen the entire practice since it grew up um i started my first project was something near and dear to jen's heart my first project was working on the harmonized system which had just come into effect when i started practicing but i also have worked heavily on anti-dumping and countervailing duty since 1983-1984 I, I don't have the exact date and certainly since i became a lawyer uh, so it's been a, a a few years of experience in the practice area and i've seen the significant changes over the years particularly as we've changed focus from market economies such as japan um, i spent most of my initial years working on Japanese cases and a shift over to market economy to non-market economy cases such as China. And I've spent a lot of time on China, but I also have continued to do, unlike a lot of my competitors, I've continued to do a number of market economy cases as well. I've worked on cases in the United Arab Emirates, India, Italy, um, and so forth. And so I, 
I, I, I bring a, a, a broad experience to it. And it's that broad experience that helps me know what's going on. And more importantly, because I've represented a lot of importers and producers, I know where the traps are and where people can fall um, fall into unexpected and unfortunate problems. But I think the first thing that you really would like to hear is we talk about anti-dumping and countervailing duty. And the question really is, well, are they different? Are they the same? Are they related? What are they? Well, and also, what, are market, what are market economies and non-market oh, well, economies? Well, I'll, I'll get to that as well, because that's very significant. But yeah. the countervailing duty law is a law that is intended to offset a foreign subsidy or a export subsidy or some sort of money received to support either a specific industry sector or an export that's deemed unfair and a violation of international rules, which hurts a U.S. company. And in that case, the government imposes a countervailing duty to countervail or offset the amount of the subsidy. Um, for example, in India, there is something called the ECPGS, which is a license which is granted to a company that is building a new facility, and they're entitled to bring in materials, factory equipment to build a new factory. And in exchange for that, they receive um, no charges on tariffs or duties into India as long as they export from India a certain quantity of material over a set period of years. And that's been found to be an impermissible subsidy by the US. And so you look at that and, and, and apply a countervailing duty subsidy to India based on the receipt of that particular benefit. Now, so a countervailing duty is harder, it's easier for us to handle because it's very rote in what it does. It's harder because it's a benefit you've received and it's hard to argue how to get out of that. Um, Anti-dumping, on the other hand, is a price discrimination statute. And in its simplest, it means that if I sell Ben a cup of tea for a dollar and Ben is in my home country and I sell Jen a cup of tea adjusted to the United States and after taking everything, I'm selling it for 90 cents then I'm dumping the tea in the United States, even if I'm making a profit, because I'm selling it for less than I'm selling it for in my home market, which means that if you have a protected home market, you tend to create dumping even when you're selling to the US at a profitable price. Now, that's a market economy calculation. In a non-market economy calculation, the answer is they don't care what I sell the tea to Ben for because they said, well, that's not a market economy transaction. So we have to create a cost that we're going to compare. And this is why the, the China cases are so complicated. And the way they do that is they pick another country they say is similar to China, and they find out what it would cost to make a cup of tea in that country. And they then find out what the profits would be of a company making tea in that country. And they create a cost for a cup of tea. So they might determine that I'm selling the tea to the United States for 90 cents and it would cost me $1.50 to make a cup of tea in Malaysia. And therefore I am dumping at a very significant margin, even if I'm actually selling tea in China for 50 cents a cup. So that's why we talk about market economy being important, but that's where anti-dumping and countervail differ because countervail is based simply on what you receive as a benefit Anti-dumping, you can adjust in part by setting your selling price differently. I could avoid dumping to Jen, for example, by raising my cup of tea cost, or by lowering, if I'm market economy, lowering the cost of tea that I sell for in the home market, or in a non-market economy, by finding a country where it costs less to make tea than it does in China. And so these are all factors that all have to be taken into account in the macro sense of dealing with anti-dumping countervailing duty. 
and obviously it sounds like there's a lot of unique challenges and changes, whether it's the industry you play in, where it's exporting from, where it's coming to. Um, as you mentioned, some of these cases can be a little bit more intricate than others. Um, at the beginning of this episode, you guys mentioned that a lot of what you do is this quote unquote 911 work and after the fact something went wrong. Um, but I know in talking before we started recording, you know, you'd love to have more clients coming to you on the beginning, you know, looking more at pre-compliance, making sure before deals are done or imports are made that, uh, all your ducks are in a row and, and you've had these discussions. So in talking to a company that maybe has never imported or never exported, whichever the two, uh, tends to be more important in these cases. Um, you know, what, what would you recommend to a company that's brand new to this, that's looking to begin importing material, exporting material, um, to make sure that they're all checked off with any potential anti-dumping or CBD cases. Before I, before I move to that, I would just point out there's one other thing in the U.S. law which makes it difficult for importers. The duties in the U.S. in anti-dumping and countervailing duty are calculated on a retrospective basis. In other words, when I import into the United States, I might deposit duty at 5%. And at the end of a calculation, if I'm subject to a review, which we'll talk about at some point, and the commerce determines that the rate should be 25%. Two and a half years after I import, I may receive a bill for 20% plus interest. Or if I imported at 20% and the rate ends up being at 5%, I may receive a refund. And so when we talk about seeing us ahead of time, one of the most important reasons to see us ahead of time is so you can understand what your risks are and you can work with your foreign supplier to make sure he has taken every step he can take to minimize the rate so that when the final rate is calculated, it is lower than what you deposited and you're going to get money, as opposed to an uncooperative foreign supplier where the government may decide to punish them by hitting them with a very, very high punishment rate. And so, once you've identified that your product potentially is at risk, and we'll talk how to do that, Jen is very good at helping identify that. We immediately need to make sure that we are interacting with you, but more importantly, you are interacting with your foreign supplier. And your foreign supplier knows what their responsibilities are, and they're not just making a quick buck and going to leave you holding the bag because ultimately you're the one who pays the money not the foreign supplier. And if the foreign supplier tells the Commerce Department, hey, I don't want to play ball, and you've deposited at 5%, and your foreign supplier, because he refuses to cooperate, suddenly gets you a rate of 250%, the only damage to the foreign supplier is he may eventually lose the U.S. market. But you're out 245% duty. And so that's where the risk factors come in. And that's why this, perhaps, now Jen and I may disagree, but that's why this is the most important area for you to talk to us and to get our, your suppliers online. And frankly, I work with a lot of foreign suppliers to get your foreign suppliers educated because your foreign suppliers have to know what they are expected to do and be willing to do it. Now, how do you know whether you're subject to dumping? Well, there's a couple of ways of doing this. The first, of course, you talk to Jen. Jen is very good at identifying um, products that are subject to dumping. If you want to do it yourself, you can go to the International Trade Commission and you can get a list of articles that are subject to dumping. And you can download them and you can read them. And you can say, ah, I'm bringing in this particular petrochemical and it's subject to dumping because this chemical has had an order against it. But that requires the ability to fully understand what the scope is. And a real life example is there's a chemical, water treatment chemical, I won't use its full chemical name, I'll use it shorthand, HEDP. And HEDP is a very important water treatment chemical, which is subject to anti-dumping out of China. However, that's only in the liquid form that it's subject to the anti-dumping. And a number of companies have over the years started to try to bring it in powder, which on its face appears to be out of the scope of the order. But now there are questions being raised as to whether if I take 
liquid HEDP, I turn it into a powder, I bring it into the US, I solubilize it in the US, and I sell it as a liquid, am I still subject to the dumping order? And so when we deal with chemicals or we deal with any product, it is very important to not only read the order, but understand what it applies to and to make sure that if you've come up with a clever way around the scope of the order, that it hasn't already been thought of. Um, because oftentimes you will be wrong or the government will have thought about it. And then there's the hidden dumping orders where a, a product, I'll give you another real life example, quartz slab is the stuff that everyone puts in when they renovate their kitchens. The quartz slab order applies not only to imports of quartz slab, it applies to imports of, for example, I take my quartz slab, I ship it to Mexico, I make a kitchen counter in Mexico that happens to have a quartz slab top on it, I bring it into the US, the quartz slab top is still subject to the Chinese dumping order, even though the article being imported into the United States is a finished Mexican kitchen cabinet. And that's again a question of knowing the order and knowing what's involved. And so ultimately what Jen does, and I help Jen do this, is you come to us and you say, these are the lists of products I'm bringing in. And we say, well, you've got a potential threat here, you have a threat here and so forth. And then we monitor the filing of new cases. And if a new case is filed that affects you, we let you know. Now you can do this all yourself, but it's a lot of work. No, you can't, don't even. It's impossible for a novice person who just started importing, David, I happily challenge you to that because David makes it sound easy because he's been doing this for not two minutes, right? Obviously he's experienced and he knows what he's saying and what he's doing. So for him, it's like riding a bike, you know? But now to me, I want you to tell an infant to ride a bike because that's basically what David is saying. It's not a problem for an infant to ride a bike. That's a pro bike with, without training wheels. And that's Actually, basically what he's asking you to do. And honestly, to me, what 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 I personally loathe about the anti-dumping system that David will disagree with all day is, is the lack of transparency within it for a novice. For a novice, David says you look at one specific list, but the truth is you can't really just look at that one list because that one list, you may or may not understand what's on that list and whether your product applies to that list, but that doesn't even tell you what's being contemplated ben let me give you one scenario and this blows my mind that it even exists this way so ben you're importing chemical a right david is a manufacturer in the us of chemical a and ben you're selling it to me jen at less than fair market value so you're in whatever mind maybe you're lying cheating stealing maybe you're not but let's just say you're selling me chemical a for fifty dollars but david can only sell it for a hundred dollars that's what it, that's what it costs him to make it right now our fabulous government in the united states goes through their investigation and david knows every timeline for that investigation right but there's there's another website that just talks about investigations right so you're supposed to monitor just that website for investigations but that's different than the other website that you're monitoring for all the scopes that are already in process right so now we're talking about a minimum of two by the time i'm done telling you about websites ben i'm telling you about 10 different websites that you have to monitor and remember you're a freaking infant right you're just started in this industry how do you even know what 10 websites right so now here's the best part right government says it's critical. This is a critical issue for David. And they go through this crazy circumstance called critical circumstances. And now the last 90 days of my imports where I didn't even know that the government was investigating chemical A because I've been importing. And of course, I wasn't even paying attention. Or even if I was paying attention to investigations, the government says your last 90 days of importations going backwards you've got to pay anti-dumping on. Crazy. How the hell do you plan for that? That's an impossibility. No one can teach you how to plan for that. This to me is a crazy world where there are a lot of unknowns. And when David talks about risks and it being the most important to me, I have seen people lose their butts in, in terms of the liability that they actually owe the government 
anti-dumping adds up so quickly because in that percentage bin, you're selling it to me for 50, David can only make it for 100, minimum double, right? Now add that up for 90 days. Let's say I imported a lot. I can't even control those costs. I've already sold that product. I can't account for that in my profit margin, right? Yeah. Crazy. And, and, I, and I have two questions just from what we talked about before, and I'm sure maybe people that aren't familiar with anti-dumping and imports and all that might have the same questions. Anti-dumping and the products you're talking about, the it's not product-based in, I guess, two questions. So it's not product-based. It's based on the product and the origin. I'm assuming that's correct. You can you can have multiple products or one product produced in 10 different places, but maybe only two of those are subject to the duties. And is there a standard or typical timeline of these dumping duties that get applied? Do they, do they come on for 60 days, 10 years? I mean, is, is there an average on both of those? Well, let me start with the first question, which is the cases are brought by the U.S. industry, and they choose which countries and which products they wish to bring. And there are numerous cases. I'm actually working on a chemical case, right? I've worked on two chemical cases where the U.S. industry has been producing the product in the foreign country against which they're bringing the dumping action. And so they're bringing the case against themselves, claiming that that the other Chinese producers are the ones that are really selling it low, but they have to bring their own product within the scope. Or they're producing the product at a factory in Malaysia, and they're dumping it like crazy into the U.S. market on Malaysia, but because they're the only U.S. producer, they don't include Malaysia in their dumping case. They only conclude the countries that they're competing against. So it is a a choice of country by the domestic industry who decides what they're going to bring and how they're going to bring it. And for example, they might decide that I'm going to bring a dumping case against a chemical and I'm not going to include the precursor chemicals in my dumping case because I don't make the precursor chemicals in the US. I import the precursor chemicals from China myself and I blend the final chemical in the US. Or I might decide that I make the precursor chemicals in the US and I want to bring everything in, not only the precursor, but the final chemical because of a competitive nature. And I'll give you how extreme it can be. I'm aware of a case where the Chinese producer, US importer, dumped product in the US at massive low prices drove the U.S. producer into bankruptcy, purchased the U.S. producer out of bankruptcy, two months later filed an anti-dumping duty case against China, citing their own exports from China, driving the U.S. industry out of business as the basis for an order. And so they obtained an order after putting a U.S. producer, the only U.S. producer, out of business and then bringing, buying them in bankruptcy and bringing a dumping case and getting a protected market. So the dumping laws are very frustrating sometimes because they don't deal with economic reality. And of course, they also don't deal with economic reality because let's say I am selling Ben a product at one price and Jen product at another price. And because Jen buys 50 gallons of tea a week and you buy one gallon of tea a week, I'm going to charge Jen a lot less per gallon of tea. And I deserve now, that. If I take the price for one gallon of tea because of that everything else, it might look like I'm dumping tea to Jen and overcharging you. But overall, I'm making a profit. Well, that's not what commerce does when they do the calculation. They only look at assuming that you're breaking even and they only look at the amount that you're underselling to Jen and they create artificial margins. So there's a lot of tricks, a lot of things you have to know, but you know, the only way to really deal with it is you can bring in a professional or I can use the old auto commercial. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. Um, if you, if you want to do it yourself, you know, Unlike Jen, I'm perfectly happy with you trying to do it yourself because ultimately I get more work um, because it takes solving a problem, takes significantly more time and energy than preventing a problem. 
Um, and you know, I'm old yeah, enough that I like sitting back and uh, um, we use his brain for more solving problems than anything else. But the other aspect that's quite cool, Ben, is let's say you come to us and let's go back to chemical A, right? And chemical A is now on the scope list. So it's on that list that David told you at first, go to commerce, looking at the list, fine. It, you know chemical A is on the list. And when you review what's called the scope of chemical A, you're looking at you know, the chemical properties on this particular list, your product falls squarely within it. You know it does. The cool aspect is if you go to somebody like us for help at the beginning, David thinks deeper because he likes to think about what the next steps are. It's almost like a game of chess consistently, you know? It's like, what's their move? What's your move? How are you gonna play this here and here and here? Well, fine, who's your producer? Because the way that this works in this fabulous game of chess is producers can ask for their own separate race based upon their own specific scenario. That's where David has the best expertise ever and has partners in specific countries to help with the data that's exactly needed for the review. So now, Ben, let's say that your competitors have 100% anti-dumping and countervailing duty rate, but you have David going in country to whoever your producer is in whatever country and helping them with their specific case to get a lower rate. In some instances, David's helped people get a rate of zero while their competitors have these crazy, crazy rates. In fact, in fact, that case I talked about, about the Chinese producer bankrupting and buying a new company, the dumping case they brought, I represented another Chinese producer. And in the investigation, we got a zero for that particular Chinese producer, meaning they were excluded from the order. So every producer in China was subject to a 75 to 80% duty, except my client who was never subject ever to the duty going forward. Now you asked about how long these cases last. Under the US law, every five years, it's subject to something called the sunset review. And all that really means is after five years, if the domestic industry puts in a letter and says, we want to keep the case going, the case keeps going. Well, in that case, the case didn't keep going because after five years, the domestic industry threw the case away. And the reason is two years later, they brought the case again. Um, and they were asked at the ITC, why did they bring the case? And because they turned around and they pointed at me and said, because that bastard got a Chinese producer exempted from the order and rendered the order worthless. Now, my producer loved it because he was the only person that could ship product to the United States at no duty. And so the U.S. market price had been artificially inflated. And so he was, in, in his case, he took advantage of the dumping duty. So it's not always a negative. If you know how to take advantage of it, um, I have several other clients that we have gotten zeros in administrative actions for that are the only producers from china for example that can ship and they're ecstatic and i've scared the domestics off and they don't ask for reviews that's what you want to do but that's hard to do if you don't have full cooperation and um preparation and separately now, impossible to do yourself. And scope, I want another point on scope. Scope is what's covered. The US recently changed the scope rules to something I call revealed scope, as opposed to discovered scope. And that's if someone goes in and says, hey, this product should be subject to the scope of the order, and it hasn't been subject to the scope of the order. If commerce finds that it is in fact subject to the scope of the order, they call it in my words, a revealed scope. And they say that means it's always been subject to the scope of the order. And anything that is open that could fall under that revealed scope gets dragged into the case. So even if your product is out of scope and the entries have been made, if they haven't been liquidated, there's still a threat. And that's again why you need to talk to Jen to make sure that you've put every possible protective step into place. And there are, there are lots of, and we won't go into what they are, but there are lots of things you can do to protect yourself. 
And there are many companies that successfully import in the anti-dumping area, but they do so by understanding what their risks are and how to mitigate their risks. Ben, can you imagine? I've seen people import under their own name individually without even having a business and later figure out that their products are subject to anti-dumping. I mean, David literally will bang his head against the wall for the rest of his life if he hears things like this. It's horrible. Worst <laughs> scenario, right? Something you never, ever want to hear. But if this individual would have come to a lawyer at first, we would have told that particular individual to have, at a minimum, you need a business. You can't import individually. So many other pro tips in terms of what law firms would do, but then, Start from the beginning, right? You have no idea what anti-dumping is. Now you have various websites that you can potentially go to to try to figure it out, but it's difficult. This is not like a one, two, three easy analysis. And the import side, we talked about classifications. You know what the beautiful part about classifications is? There's one website, one website, only one. You go to the harmonized tariff schedule of the US and you go to that one website for the codes. Now you go to a different website for the interpretations, right? But same website differently. That interprets the code. Another site goes to the explanatory notes to interpret what you interpret, right? And then another website for the actual binding rulings. In this particular case, you've got a total of four different things that you should look at when interpreting your import code, your harmonized tariff schedule. For the anti-dumping side on the scope side, who's being investigated? What's the scope of their particular review? Do they have an actual scope? Is it already in progress? Is it not in progress? Are they being re-reviewed, not being re-reviewed? Has somebody else asked questions? Is this a public scope or a private scope? Because there's a separate website for attorneys with private stuff that the regular public wouldn't see. Did you go on the ACE website to also look at dumping? Did you look at the classification to make sure the classification is or isn't part of the case? By the time you are done, I have to review 10 different sources of information in order to give you a maybe or maybe not. And then sometimes the answer is, you know what? You're in a gray area. And Commerce has a cool process similar to customs on the binding ruling side where you can request a scope ruling. The idea is you ask the government, hey, my product's chemical A. It seems pretty similar to your chemical. I'm not sure if it's part of the scope, not part of the scope. Here's the description of my product and such. But you know what happens when you send that in? A, you're supposed to hear an answer back in 45 days. And 45 days, David and I will both laugh forever to tell you that quite often that doesn't happen. Sometimes you get very lucky. But in reality, it's not like you're just requesting it of the government. The government reviews it and that's it. You're requesting it and you have to literally tell everybody who's ever made a similar request and the domestic industry who's fighting against anybody who's importing this particular product or something similar because they're trying to protect their own. This is all rooted out in protectionism, right? And it also depends. Economy. It also depends in part on who's representing the domestic industry because there are there are a number of law firms that represent the domestic industry. And they have the ability to fight and butt in on your scope ruling request and say, you know what? I don't like this guy and I don't want this guy to get his own separate rate or not have to comply with this scope. So I'm going to fight them. So it becomes literally like you're a party to litigation just to figure out whether your party, whether your product is or isn't subject to this scope and has to deal with a particular percentage extra in duties. And you have to figure this out before. Imagine you already imported, Ben, and then you go back 90 days and have to pay 75%. Good luck, right? Well, there's also the added what I call the um, I use the impolite term extortion, but there's wow. also the um, there's also the what the domestic industry calls the settlement amount, where once a dump it once a case is in place and there's an order, there's a potential for annual review, and in certain cases, the domestic industry requests a review of say 400 companies. And then they go to those 400 companies and say, we understand you imported X dollars into the United States this year. If you pay us $100,000, we will withdraw the request for review for you and you will not be subject to review. You will keep your rate. 
Doesn't that sound like it's like the mafia? Like, when would you think that this really happens in the United States? But this is this is real. This is a real. This is real, and this this happens. This happens with growing frequency. And again, this is why you need to be prepared in advance because the extortion also works the other way. It doesn't happen as often, but we also have a foreign producer that asks for a review of its imports to the United States. And there's a famous case involving this. The company had a rate of 6%. It then picked up the phone and called its US importer. And it said, it's going to cost us $300,000 to answer this review request. And if we refuse to answer this review request, you will get a bill for $5 million from the US government. But if we do respond, we'll be fine. We want you to pay us $500,000 more in money to participate. And they used the threat of the anti-dumping rules to extort $500,000 more from their customer. So that's why, again, it's important, talk to Jen, talk to us, so together we can make sure your supplier is honest, your supplier is going to cooperate, and your supplier isn't going to try, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for, a stunt. And it, and, it, and it sounds like in terms of trying to monitor all this stuff, I think the next point we had was to, to how to monitor some of these cases. And I think we really just covered it is you can try to analyze these 10, 15, 20 different websites and even then not get a clear picture of it or not to just be an infomercial for either DS Trade Law or any other law firm out there. But really, you need a partner to be working with you on this if you're doing any level of import from uh, you know just a, a handful of products to a full suite of uh, inventory, no matter what industry, and you, you really need a partner like you guys fighting on your behalf and, and keeping you informed of all this different stuff going on. That that seems to be the overwhelming advice. As much as you can try to self-monitor and keep an eye on some of these sites. I will say this. In the informed compliance manual, so you remember at the beginning on the import side, we talked about the reasonable care checklist, like your obligation as an importer, right? Part of your obligations as an importer, and one of the questions that's asked in your reasonable care checklist is, have you taken measures or developed reliable procedures to check to see if your goods are subject to a Commerce Department anti-dumping countervailing duty investigation or determination? And if so, have you complied or developed reliable procedures to ensure compliance with customs recording requirements upon entry? There's so many fun intricacies. One is, if you don't have a statement of non-reimbursement from your supplier, customs can automatically presume that you're being reimbursed and you have to pay double. So if your rate's 75%, it automatically goes to 150, crazy. But if you're a brand new baby importer and you don't know anything about this, you may not have your statement with your entries upon importation. That's crazy. Something a lawyer would tell you right away if you actually proactively seek help, whether it's us or anybody else. Nobody can do this on their own. It's like if you don't have an expert in your corner and you're trying to import, the system is set up for big guys. The system isn't set up for little guys. It's set up for little guys with a network. You need your crew. And if you have the well, right crew behind you, no worries. And I would point out that the initial, it's always the initial cost is always where the cost is. Because once you've talked to us, you reviewed the product, we know what your product is, you've got the systems in place, the monitoring is significantly easier. It's always the initial business analysis that takes the time and energy. Because if you've analyzed the business and you realize that right now you're in an industry that is not subject to anti-dumping or countervailing duty um, or 301 or one of the other duties, then you know that you're then in a easier monitoring situation as opposed to, I'm bringing in products made of aluminum and there's an order on aluminum extrusions and who knows what in the hell it's going to apply to next week because the aluminum extrusions order has hundreds of scope rulings and keeps changing what's covered. Um, so you know, chemicals, we've got a lot of discussion right now going on with um, certain chemicals. Uh, the domestic industry had a chemical that was found by the ITC to be non-injurious and not subject to the order. And they attempted to bring that chemical back in under a scope ruling. Um, and they were unsuccessful. But
but there are lots of these HFC cases going on right now as well. And so there's every industry, um, there's lots of things going on, um, you know, and, 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 I, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we also have to talk at least for a couple of minutes on what customs does to enforce this. So this to me goes on the monitoring side because you know who else monitors customs and how does customs monitor? They want to make sure they're getting the right revenue. And when I say revenue, when you're importing, you put down what's called a cost deposit. And that's the alleged percentage of the scope, right? That you're entitled to pay, lucky you. Now, that doesn't mean that it's gonna be final within a specific period of time. You know, Sometimes these scopes take a year, two years, five years. I've seen one take 17 years to become final. And so many stories in regards to that. But what I'm, the important aspect here is we get involved quite a bit and I would call this the 911 situation. So what do you look out for if you're an importer to know that you're in a 911 situation? The first step is what's called a request for information. If customs is sending you a CBP form 28, we talked about this a little on importing 101 on our import side, it's not because they like you. It's not because they want to be friends and want to get to know you and your product more. It's because they think you're doing something wrong and they have some good, credible evidence on their side that you're likely screwing something up. And what are they looking for? Money. They want your money, honey. So if they think that you should be paying that extra 75% and you're not, they're going to look for the same classifications or class. They, they have all sorts of great algorithms. And once they're on to somebody who lied, cheated or stole or got away with something, then they find everybody else in the same universe that has similar scenarios and they pounce. They go after them like a truck going in. You know, it's there. There's full force, full steam ahead. So the first sign is that request for information. And when you get that, it could be that they're already investigating you and you don't even know. And their way to investigate you is to ask you some simple kind questions. I see a lot of people say, they asked me easy questions. I just, you know, I just wrote on the little notice and hand wrote some notes on there and sent it back to them, we're good. And the next thing that happens is you get a, a notice of action saying, thanks so much for giving me all the intel that I needed you're screwed. Here's your bill. Because they, sometimes they don't even say, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond again. Sometimes they just say, action taken. You screwed yourself in that response because you didn't really know what I was asking you for, right? Because I'm not going to make it clear to you and be nice and transparent and open to you to tell you that I'm investigating you for something. Or it could be that a, another US competitor told on you and they said, you know what? Look into that, Jen. She's importing and she's paying way less and she's competing with me and my customers are going to her and I hate her, right? So U.S. government, go after her and get her because she should be paying these anti-dumping duties too. So what does customs do? They send me that request for information. I don't know what they're sending me and I could send back a response that really puts the nails in my coffin and I don't even know it. And then I'm subject to an Enforce and Protect Act case, which is the last thing we really wanted to talk about because there's so many different aspects. So you're talking about not only the potential anti-dumping duties, but you're also talking about potential penalties and you're talking about potential investigations and potentially being part of a public case. Crazy, Ben, but we could talk about this for hours and I know we have limited time, so we're gonna end with this portion. Well, and you mentioned one thing about that too that I think is interesting is how competition can play a role in that. I know you mentioned obviously competition can sort of tell on you and, and try to make your life more difficult that way. Um, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of cases on uh, actual duties and, and issues that have come up, maybe putting other competitors in a much worse position or even potentially out of business with some of these crazy tariffs. Um, not that uh, I guess it's a tough thing too as a company. You know, you can control what you're importing, how you're listing it, making sure you pay the duties. You can't really control what your competition is or isn't doing. Um, but w what are some examples of some situations or cases you guys have seen where competition played a role in that and, and how that was handled? Uh, well, I, I'm sure there's I, plenty I of cases that came up that way. One of them is what I talked about, which is a very common one, which is you list specific things and you limit your scope and you don't include a precursor chemical, for example. Or right now there's an allegation going on in a case involving um, large cranes, mobile, mobile equipment devices, where the US industry 
has carefully defined what constitutes a submodule and what doesn't, because the domestic industry is allegedly importing certain kinds of submodules into the US and is assembling them into completed cranes here. But they want to make sure that whatever they're importing is something that fits their business model. And they don't want it to be used for the Chinese to start bringing in their own submodules and assembling it. And so you will see that the scope of a case or what is brought um, can very much depend on the competition. Um, I might, for example, I might have a product where my domestic competitors are very profitable. And I realize that I might not see an ITC injury finding. So I want to create a very narrow scope so that just my product is within the scope and my competitors who are making money are excluded so that I can get it just on my product. And then later I'll try to expand the scope to take out my competitor's product, but I don't want the ITC to look at that. And I'm actually in court right now on a very, that very situation. Um, so, you know, there are many ways that competition enters into it. And ultimately um, I'll use the Jerry Maguire, show me the money because ultimately that's where the dumping and countervailing duty actions and the EAPA actions as well, they follow the money. And EAPA, which Jen has talked about, I find particularly reprehensible because you don't know the information that you're looking at because it's secret. Even lawyers can't see the secret information. Well, you have to stop there for a second because that is insane to me. And it's something that just needs to be public like you really need to get the gravity of how horrific this has been so let's say competitor x hates me let's say ben you hate me you're the u.s producer you hate me you come up with this wild accusation and you do god knows what to come up with it and then it's sent to the government the government goes after me and then basically exhibit a for the government is what you said i don't even get to see it and then the government says, you, Jen, prove that what Ben said is crap, but I don't even get to see what Ben said. That is insane to me that that is legal and what happens, but that's exactly how it works. Well, it's even worse. It's even worse because, and then the government issues the decision and the decision says, we find that Jen is cheating and then because, and then they put a brackets around it and they don't tell you the reason that they made the decision. And the only way that you ultimately find this is after two levels of administrative review, which you must go through, then you go to court. And then finally in court, you're able to sort of see what's been alleged. And then you might discover that, for example, I put in a trip report and the trip report says, I went to Jen's factory in, 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 in some country. I went to Jen's factory and they refused to let me in. Um, so therefore, I saw people who looked like they came from Spain, and I'm bringing the case against a Spanish product. So I saw some people who looked Spanish around the factory. So clearly, there's something going on to break the dumping laws. And the answer is no, but I know that sounds bizarre. Cases have been initiated on EAPA on fact patterns that are that weak. Incredible. And the the problem is i won't see the trip report all i'll know is there'll be a report from an expert the expert went to the factory and reports the following confidential and it could be i went to the factory i saw nothing i couldn't get in but the u.s government still accepted that as a basis for starting the case and it is one of these these eapa cases you can't you don't know what the decision is. You don't even know what the allegations against you are. And we're fighting these right now. We have them, a number of them in court. There's a challenge to the constitutionality of this, that this is the ultimate star chamber procedure. We might allow this maybe in an espionage case. If someone is stealing nuclear secrets, this is about the same level of information that you we're get. We're not talking about national stole. security here. We're talking about competitors, which is crazy to me that we right. even have to have this conversation to begin with. 
Right. So, Ben, we could talk about star chambers and everything else for another five years. If you let <laughs> us, David and I can talk for hours. So if you do let us, we're happy to stay on for hours. But, but I know you'll us. have to cut me up, but yeah. No, and I think, you know, it's all good info. It's, it's if nothing else, it, it brings up the importance of having a good partner, having someone watching your back, looking at all this stuff. It's really, truly not. I mean, maybe on the import and export side, there's a couple of websites you monitor and look at it. And sure, maybe you could get away with it for a long time and might be okay. But it seems like the anti-dumping, there's so many gray areas and different things to monitor. You really need a good partner um, to, to watch your back, no matter what level of importing and exporting you're, you're doing. Um, really a difficult thing or next to an impossible thing, as, as David said in the beginning, to really do yourself. Well, also, again, and I wrote articles on this, I call it the trap. Your bigger problem is that when you're an importer and you're dealing with your import-export issues that Jen deals with, you have control over those. Sure. Because sure. ultimately, you know what you're doing, you have control over this. In dumping, one of the problems is you don't have control. You lose the control. You have to depend on someone who's not you. And, and you could get penalized severely for things that you didn't do and didn't know. Yep. And that's why it's a different level and requires a different level of protection because it's a different animal when it comes to protection. Sure. And I think before we wrap things up here, one of the last notes I had here was um, I'm not sure how much you guys have dealt with cases specifically with the tariffs in China going on. I, I know it's a big topic with us in the chemical industry, um, something I'm sure I'd uh, get flack for without asking you guys. So I figured while we have you on the line, I was, I was curious to get your two cents on the China tariffs um, from what you guys are monitoring, if there's any sign of them going away. Um, I know obviously no one can read Biden's mind except Biden, um, but I wanted to get your two cents on the, the China tariffs here before we wrapped up while we're talking about these fun import exporting duties. Well, Jen and I are about to have a disagreement because while they're not necessarily going away, based on what we're seeing in the litigation on list three and four, the 301 duties on list three and four are truly in peril. Agreed. On list one and two, you're still screwed. You're still on list one and two, but if your chemical happens to fall on lists three or four, and you're not yet involved in the litigation, you need to pick up the phone and call your nearest lawyer and then get involved in the litigation because- We are still signing people up for the litigation now. And even though it's way late, you if you are on list three or four, it is a must, 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 must to And get we're involved. seeing positive developments in the litigation without going into detail. Everything that's gone on so far in the litigation has been a victory for the importers um the the, the u.s industry the not the u.s industry the the u.s government has to date been flailing and the court has recognized that they've been flailing and the positions that are being taken by the u.s are consistently being rejected by the court and while it's no predictor of final results um my probability score of us seeing three and four going away I think I've more than doubled the probability that we're going to succeed. I think when the case was first brought, it was a relatively low probability event. And I'm now putting it up into the reasonable probability area. And it's certainly not a slam dunk. When the case started, realistically, we were at, to to give it a number, between the 20 and 30% range. That was, you know, some people were as low as 15, I would say. Between anywhere between 15 and 20, 25, you were hearing that was what the trade community was about. Now it's it's even more than that. Bottom line is it's way better than any lotto ticket you could ever find. So if you have any real money on the line, and I mean if you have fifty thousand or more on the line, it's worth your while to get into the case. Way more than that, then it's absolutely worth your while. It's a minimal investment to get into the case. And what I'm talking about, no, I absolutely am talking about list one and two. And we were hoping for exclusions to come back via a specific bill, but it's not looking like it. So it's looking like that's going to be flailing for a little while as well. So list one and two, you have to keep your eyes open for potential exclusions coming back. And when they do, if they do, and I'm saying when they do, because they really should come back. No, that bill's going to pass. You that think? Bill, that bill, absolutely, that bill is going to pass. It has too many. There's a miscellaneous tariff bill right now pending, which does a number of things. It renews GSP. 
it passes, and for the chemical industry, this is very important. It passes all the miscellaneous tariff bills back. So we had all of these temporary suspensions, and most of those temporary suspensions apply to chemicals. And it's going to pass. Yeah, we talk about that quite a bit. GSP is crazy that that it stops. You know, it makes no sense, and it's consistent. They've just been tied up with other things, but this this bill was the senate version of the bill is a by it's a bipartisan bill in the senate it's a bipartisan bill in the house this is one of the few things the house and senate can agree on but for reasons of scheduling it just hasn't advanced um we're going to see the miscellaneous tariff bill pass and it's going to bring back gsp it's going to bring in a bunch of duty suspensions for chemicals it's just they're not going to be retroactive to the expiration, they're only going to be 90-day retroactive from the date of signing of the bill, um, and it's also going to bring back a revisiting of the exemption process. But you just need to keep keep your eyes tuned on your local lawyers who will tell you when this bill passes. Um, my current projection is I think it passes in uh, late October. But I'm not that hopeful, but it's okay. You know, you never know. We'll we'll come back to you, Ben, and, and come November we'll have a talk again, and we'll see we'll see what's going on. But I I just there's there's so much randomness going on right now, and God forbid there would be consensus on anything. So I I am a pessimist at heart, and David is an optimist. So well well, this sounds like this sounds like good podcast. I was say good TV, but it's not good TV. It's audio. So it sounds like it sounds like good audio, and and maybe a, an upcoming podcast. Uh, session here in the next 60 days or 90 days to see we where we always at. talk about resources ben so i do want to leave you with some resources please. as well so please. the reality is whenever new cases come out that are sexy fun cases david tells us and we post them on our blog so at a minimum dstradelove.com we have our blog and we post at least weekly sometimes more sometimes less but usually a minimum before ish a month and then we if you don't catch that weekly, every month we summarize all the really important news and the breaking news that we also put on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. So if there's breaking hot news, we post it on social media. And then every month we summarize all the exciting news, all exciting events via a newsletter. Then when you're going on websites, government sources, the government expects you to check the federal register every day. How many people know that a federal register exists? So I dare you and I dare everyone to go through the federal register every day. And then at least, you know, it's the equivalent to a sleeping pill. So if you're ever really, really bored or you can't sleep, open the federal register and read today's issue and tell me how your sleeping went after the fact. Thereafter, the ACE account that we talked about on the importing and exporting side is non-negotiable. If you import or export and you don't have an ACE account, to me, you shouldn't be in business, period because ACE has a specific reference guide just for anti-dumping countervailing duties that's helpful, but not determinative, because then you also have to go to the International Trade Commission site and look at all the investigations and all of the scopes. And you have to know all of the scopes that are in place for every single country as well. So by the time you're done, you're at a minimum looking at numerous sources. It is what it is. There is not one. And if anybody tells you there's only one thing you ever need to look at for anti-dumping, then you know they're lying. And as always, I'm sure you know you guys can send over the, those list of resources uh, wherever you're streaming the podcast. You know, scroll right down, and we'll have the all the links right there. Um, you know, always a good good list of resources to kind of sum up the uh, episode and and something to take a look at ref- referencing. I will make bets on how many resources people will get until they'll call you guys instead of reading all the resources. But uh, you know, good to have them and, and, and nice to be able to add them on to the bottom of this podcast here. Um, I think overall, maybe our, our longest episode yet, but I think there's a ton of good info in there. Lots to keep an eye on. Uh, sounds like it's one big gray area and, and, and a lot to try to keep your eyes on and, and wrap your head around. Um, but as always, we appreciate you guys coming on the podcast. I think it's been a great episode and a, a great three-part mini-series here. Um, looking forward to launching them and, and getting them out there, uh, sharing them both on TCC's platform as well as on your own platforms. Um, so just wanted to you know wrap it up again, say thank you for your time. Thank you for Jen for all three episodes, for David for coming on this episode, um, and look forward to having hopefully you both on in, in future episodes as the world of importing and exporting duties seems like it continues to change and uh, always a relevant topic, always something to talk about. So just wanted to thank you guys again for your time, and it's been great, great having you on here. Thanks so much for having us. We loved it. I'm speaking for David. I know he loved it. Thank you very much. Yes, I appreciated it very much. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, just once again, we'll have all the references, notes uh, down wherever you're streaming the podcast. Just scroll down and all the links should be there um, as well as up on our website. I'm sure they'll be up on the Diaz Trade Law website once everything's live. Uh, so thank you again for listening and uh, we'll catch you next time.